All right, y'all, before we get to the latest episode of the Banquet Hall podcast, I just wanted to talk to y'all a little bit about another sponsor of the pod. I have the shirt on, I have the board game in hand. That's right, we're talking about Play Black Wall Street, the board game. Uh, Play Black Wall Street has the mission of educating families on the legacy and ideals of Black Wall Street in a fun way through creative and educational experiences. And the best part is you can have Play Black Wall Street, the board game in your own hands. Uh, Go ahead and head to the link in the description. You can use my link uh, to get 10% off the second edition of Play Black Wall Street, the board game. Uh, Just go to playblackwallstreet.com slash banquet hall podcast. That's playblackwallstreet.com slash banquet hall podcast. And once y'all get y'all skills up in the game, holla at me and I'll be happy uh, to learn a little bit about Black Wall Street with y'all. Now let's get to the episode. Are you going to be solving the Rubik's Cube as, like, are you just going to solve the Rubik's Cube like 10 times during the podcast? Should I said it over under? No, because they... <laughs> If I feel like if I do that, I'm not going to pay attention as much to what you're saying or even like looking at you. But so this seems to be nerdy shit. So when I was I love trying it. to get better, <laughs> when I was trying to get better at solving it. I figured out there's a sequence of patterns that um. So there's a few algorithms that you need to know how to do fast if you want to solve it. The but I guess right side up version, which is the slower version, but the other side is too chaotic. Um, so there's like three algorithms in total. I want to get better at those. And I realized if you start with a perfectly solved Rubik's Cube and you do the algorithms in a certain way, like just those three algorithms, you get back to a normally solved cube. So I started doing it a lot in high school and I got to the point where I think I can still do it without looking at it. I'm going to try now. Yeah, I can still do it. Wow. It's funny, because um, from your view, maybe I just put it down and didn't actually do shit. But <laughs> yeah, I, like I'm not gonna lie. I was like, you could be doing anything. You could have just been staring off into the distance yeah, and be like, be... <laughs> like, yeah, it's all. But nah, there we go. I trusted you though. I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna cap on you. You you a math person? That's true. But in case you put it in the podcast, I want viewers to understand. Oh, I'm for sure putting this in a podcast because I feel like that's exactly what it's like. This is the James experience I want people to get. It's like, <laughs> I want people to tune into the banker hall and be like, yes, yeah, niggas like math. Like people like algorithms, like Rubik's cubes. I want this podcast to be a nerdy podcast. Like I need that to fill part of my soul. So I'm definitely putting use, like just messing with a Rubik's cube at the beginning of the podcast. Like absolutely what you mean. <laughs> Say less. Uh. And- and that's also why I start the recording early, just because usually something like that happens, like either we're busting mm-hmm. up laughing at something random, somebody pulls out a Rubik's Cube and starts solving it. Uh, it's always <laughs> yeah. the fun of the the appetizer for the podcast, but um, I can already feel the podcast voice coming on to me, so I might as well just go ahead and start the introduction. I feel you. Um, <laughs> Welcome, listeners, to another episode of the Banquet Hall Podcast. As always, my name is Kyler. I am your host. If this is your first time tuning in or if you're one of the stubborn few who just refuses to press pause for four seconds and hit the subscribe button or hit the like button or hit the five-star button, whatever button you got to hit, like, just help a brother out, please. Mm -hmm. Just do do the rating. Do the rating. Hit the buttons. Share with a friend. And we're going to get this podcast started. I'm joined by the one, the only future Dr. King, 
Uh, welcome, James, to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing solid. It's been a good. It's been a good morning. It's been one of those mornings where like I blinked and suddenly it was one. Which <laughs> don't remember, I swear it was a good morning. It was, but at the same time, I was like, "Damn, where did my day go?" No, I feel you on that. I feel you on that. Because there was a point earlier this morning where I'm like, all right, like, what should I do until the podcast? And I looked at my phone. I was like, oh, it's already like 11. The podcast is (laughs) At that point, I'm like, okay, well, I I should eat. I guess I should should get some food in my stomach. Damn. No, that's exactly what happened. I was like, "Dang, let me let me cook real quick." Like, I don't really have as much because at first I was like, "Oh, I can make me a cool little breakfast sandwich, sit and watch an episode or something." But I'm like, "Nah, like you got to get your stuff together." Oh yeah. Uh, but I knew that I was going to be looking forward to this episode, James. So I'm uh, very happy to have you on the podcast, and yeah, looking forward to folks learning more about your story. And the first question that I usually start with. For all my guests, is just to get a little bit more about where you're from. So, James, where are you from, and how did that shape who you have become or who you are becoming? Okay, so I was born, actually, in Atlanta, Georgia, which I feel like I don't say super often because I don't want to ever try to claim it, because I was actually raised in Sacramento. Uh, so anyone who's from California, um, well, first off, I want to say this, because I feel like it needs to be said. Sacramento is not the Bay. So I'll put that out right now for anyone watching. Because look, a lot of a lot of niggas from SAC might try to claim it. I have not heard any of them niggas, but apparently some do. I've heard from Bay Area people, people in SAC try to claim I've it. I've heard I'm it too. One. I'm not one. I am not one. I'm from SAC. Look, the Bay is cool. It's right there. I got no disrespect for the Bay. I'm from SAC. <laughs> not from the Bay. Um, but yeah, I was raised in Sacramento, which I feel like it's kind of been an interesting experience in part because uh, um, Sacramento is like a really, it's a hometown. I feel like that's where you go when like you, you're um, in your late 20s, maybe 30s, you're married, you're trying to get the white picket fence and that American dream bullshit. Mm. That's where like you go for that pretty much because it's not the place where you're going to find hella parties and events and shit happening all the fucking time don't be wrong there's still like a scene downtown there's a queer scene there's a black scene of course but it's not the bay areas or la's or new york's of the world so growing up with that it was a little interesting because there was kind of this notion like oh sac's just kind of boring and dull and you kind of like grew up with that it wasn't until i actually left sacramento that i really started to love it Mm. which is really strange and not to say I want to go back and live there. I know I don't because not because like the city itself just I I feel like that part of my life is now ended. But when I, every time I go back, I'm like, yeah, no, this feels very relaxed and calm and chill. And I like it a lot. Um, So, yeah, that's a little like bit, I guess, about where I'm from. But yeah. Yeah. It's interesting hearing you talk about Sacramento because I could tell there's a lot of reverence for what you consider like your hometown in there because mm-hmm. Not gonna lie, most times when people say they're from SAC, they kind of <laughs> they kind of run right past you, be like, "Yeah, from SAC," you know. And then it's just like, "Oh, like <laughs> it's like, oh, you do you not you not really repping your hometown." And I think that Sacramento is one of those cities that I've only been to a few times, but I feel like I've been there a lot because I think you really nailed it that it has that kind of hometown feel. Like you know that mm-hmm. there is like people that are like establishing lives in Sacramento. Like yeah. you're not really going out to do too too much, but 
you might have your home there. I could tell that the people who grew up in Sacramento have their community there. So uh, yeah, just always love hearing about where people grew up from. And I had forgotten that you were born in Atlanta too. And mm-hmm. I think that's that's cool that you have like this idea of like where I was born, where am I from? Um, but I think that's enough positivity for Sacramento out of me because the one thing that I need to <laughs> I need to always say whenever Sacramento comes up. Say where um, you're from. Yep. <laughs> I already know. I, say it. Say it. <laughs> I just do I just let me ask the let me ask it as a question since I'm a podcast. Okay. Are you are you a Sacramento Kings fan? Uh I wouldn't call myself a fan. We could tell by that pause. Yeah, well, no, I just try to figure out how to say it because, like, even when Sacramento was doing bad, it always kind of hurt because Mm -hmm. I wanted to see my hometown do good. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? But I wasn't, I'm not going to say I'm a fan where it's like, okay, I'm paying attention to coaching changes and who's getting taken in and out of the lineup. Like, yeah, I heard about everything, but it's, it's, I'm hearing from about it because I'm, I watch NBA shit. You know what I mean? So if I say I'm a Sacramento fan, no. Do I like saying that my hometown is doing well? Yeah. Yeah, I like that. It's nice. It's cool. as, it sh- as it should be. That I, That's where sports fandom really should be. And that's what mm. I love about sports. Because it's like some people, they've never been to a game, but they like, yeah, like Laker gang or don't bang. Like that, that's my hometown. <laughs> that's my city. And I, I will admit it was cool to have like more Kings fans be able to root for the Kings on the timeline this past season uh, with the hashtag light the beam with the lights a motherfucking beam. Yeah. I love that. It was so, it made me so mad. I was never in town for a win. Mm. Cause I'm like, yeah, I want to be there when that shit gets lit. Cause I heard like stories from friends. They're like, Oh no, it goes big. I'm like, yeah, yeah. I bet it do. I really bet it do. Cause we've been starved <laughs> for some years. Like, yeah. I think the last time that the Kings were that relevant, y'all ran into the Lakers, but we don't have to we don't have to talk about that too much. Um, but my homie Cam, who was one of the first guests of the podcast, uh, he's a Warriors fan, but he's based out of Sacramento right now. Mm. And so when y'all played the Warriors in the playoffs, like the games that Sacramento won and he would look out his window and see the beam, <laughs> I couldn't imagine because I would be the first person at that arena with a oh sledgehammer. Like, where's where's the beam? <laughs> Okay, I just want to say that that playoff series, it actually made me, I think this is why, this is another reason why I'm so happy Sacramento's in it, because I feel like I got to experience such an NBA fan thing where mm. I got to go from genuinely loving a player to like just for a second semi-hating them. Because what mm. Steph did to us in game seven hurt. The game was over. Nigga did not need to drop 50. He was just shooting from wherever at that point. He didn't, it was, it was like, no, he knows it's gonna go in. He knows it's gonna get his 50. He knows he's gonna sit on the bench. And the whole time I'm like, we're down. We're down. We're down. We're down. You don't stop. Please stop. But no, it's it was cool though. It was, it was like I said, it was an NBA experience, really. For a second, I did hate stuff for a little bit. <laughs> As you should. <laughs> oh God, I, that hurt. But it was nice. It was a good year. Yeah, I know that hurt. I I watched the game at a Buffalo Wild Wings, and it was very nice to like, like the Lakers series is already done. We beat the Grizzlies, mm-hmm. so I could just relax and watch a game seven. I had no stakes in either team. Like I felt confident the Lakers could beat either team that won. Mm-hmm. And as I was watching it, I'm like, man, I am so glad my team isn't playing Steph right now because this it was painful for me to watch. Like I'd be eating the wings, and I see the shot, I'm like, 
Ooh, that Ooh. one hurt. Mm. Put the wing down for a second. Damn. Yeah, I'm <laughs> like, ugh, Steph is nasty. Because you know them shots where you just get disgusted. It's like, man, that's despicable. So, right. yeah, you, you rightfully hated Steph Curry for a while. <laughs> yeah, just just a little bit. Just for like, I, I don't even know how long, but it was enough where I was like, okay, I understand why so many people around the league, or at least fans around the league, hate Steph just a little bit. Because that was so, it was beautiful to watch, but damn it. Yeah, that hurt. Beautiful to watch, but damn, that's that should be the Steph Curry value proposition. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Uh, but uh, as to not alienate the fans of this podcast who are like, when are they gonna talk about James? They keep talking about basketball. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, y'all. Sometimes when you when you get two people in the same space and sports gets brought up, we've been deprived of basketball for a while. We gotta we gotta get the basketball takes off for a bit. Um, but James, you're part of what has been known on some of the airways of this podcast as the UCSD Mafia, uh, part of just this gang of like just educated black people to graduate from UC San Diego, which is where we had the opportunity to cross paths. Um, but I before you talk about like kind of first impressions and when we were crossing paths, I want to to make sure we specifically mention a story that to this day just like puzzles me because some people who, if y'all are watching a video of this podcast and you're looking at James, you might think that we're twins just by how much we look alike. According to one of the According to one person. Yeah. Oh man. To this day, I still don't know who I wish. I wish I knew who it was. Cause like, no, let me, let me let you show the story. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> nah. Let, let go ahead and like. Why don't you? Why don't you fill the listeners in on our encounter with the Starbucks cashier who thought we were twins and just confuse right. us for the same person? Oh, was it Starbucks or Jamba Juice? Starbucks. Starbucks. That yeah, that tracks. Um, because <laughs> it's probably someone like. <laughs> so, from what you told me, um, this is during my first year. For context, everyone listening, this is my first year on campus. So mind you, I don't know, I don't know a lot of niggas. Not a lot of niggas on this campus know me. Okay, <laughs> make sure that's apparent. So I meet Kyler. Um, it was like a Black Men's Collective day, and mm-hmm. he's telling me like, "Hey, yo, uh, I was just at Starbucks, and someone was talking to me, and they said, hey, James,' and they thought it was you." And when I heard this in my head, I'm like, "Who the fuck?" It's like, mind you, don't get me wrong. He had locks at that time, and I had locks. And, like, they were different lengths, though. That's one I had thing. free locks. Like, they yeah, weren't even, yeah. like, in a certain way. Right. You had free locks. And I'm like, your shit was actually kind of long. My shit was still, like, above my, maybe, maybe, maybe at my ears. Not even, not even at my eyes, actually. It was still not that long. And when he tells me this, I'm trying to think, like, who the fuck mixed us up? Because even down to skin tone, like, I just don't get it. And the reason why me being a first, my first year on campus, so I was a transfer, so I started as a third year. But the reason that's important is because at that point in time, the only people who knew me were some Black people on campus, um, maybe some people from classes I had, but not even then, because I didn't, I didn't talk to a lot of people in classes or people on the fencing team. The whole time I'm thinking, it has to be someone on the fencing team. 
but I had no way of figuring out who. So when you told me that, I'm like, how? Yeah, no. I, I I just don't get it. And it wasn't even like, oh, like, how could you confuse me? I don't look nothing like him, which I don't look anything like, but it wasn't like I was offended. <laughs> like, you a good looking dude. So it's not like I was like, dang, yeah, like, like, okay. I, look like, I look like James, but it's like, nah, like, <laughs> nah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not this dude. Like, <laughs> our beards are different. Our skin complexions different. Our faces are different. Like you said, the locks was different pretty sure we're different heights like yeah there's there's just a lot that just didn't add up and then if that's not the black college experience at a pwi in a nutshell it's like i'm just i'm yeah. just trying to get my little white mocha before i go to class <laughs> and i got to get microaggression real quick just real quick before the midterm one more little little microaggression <laughs> oh my god yeah that really was like you said it perfectly that's like an easy way to if they had to give like one example of someone like hey what's it like being at a, a uc or a pwi and like the least aggressive way possible like the least aggressive experience i feel like that would be a great one like yeah this is this is what it is we're actually a monolith everyone in case you didn't know that's that's nuts yeah blackness is a monolith that's that's just yeah. how it goes exactly. and it just happened so frequently because it was even like three weeks ago. I was confused with somebody at my job. Um, they caught the other person, me. And it's like this dude, like his he has a starter beard. Like it's not like that long, but it like it does go like around his face, but it's not like longer than probably a half inch. His hair is probably like an inch at best. No ponytail. His afro wasn't even that out. Darker complexion than me. I'm just like, y'all, y'all know this ain't me. It's not even effort at this point. It's just kind of just <laughs> there's no effort. There's no there's no nothing. It's just yeah. It's like first degree cognition. They're like black. Oh, uh, just whoever comes to mind. <laughs> first degree. No, exactly, exactly, exactly. Uh, <laughs> uh what what a time. Um, what a time. Uh, but as we were planning for this podcast episode, um, there's something I put on social media that I thought was interesting and I really wanted to talk around and talk about just what it means when we talk about like missing like people from UCSD, because I think you tweeted something about like missing UCSD people. In your own words, what makes the people that were in community with you at UCSD, like what makes them special? Yeah, I think... Um... This is such an interesting thing to talk about because I feel like there's different layers to it. On one hand, I think the underlying thing I I think it's important to address is that on some level, while it's not necessarily trauma bonding, it is this level of like, okay, we're in this pretty aggressive space as Black individuals. And therefore, if you see a Black person, there's just kind of like an unspoken rule. You're going to acknowledge the presence, right? And when that gets taken into community, when we're around other Black people were at BRC, we're at BSU meetings, suddenly it's like, this is like its own small microcosm of reality almost, like we're, we're connected in this way where like nothing needs to, like some, we don't need to like say exactly why we feel safe here, you know what I mean? It's just, it's just present, it's there, we know it's there, and we can build off of that. So I think that's the first thing is that just the situation in which we're all meeting, I think it, it's, sometimes it can necessitate some people being close in other ways it just makes it easier to be but i think also 
all the Black people at UCSD that I got to be involved with, admittedly, there was some that I didn't um, didn't get along with, other people I did really get along with. But I think at the end of the day, there was still this communal communal drive, I think. It's like we had these different goals that we wanted to achieve, or even if it was just like trying to, I hate, I hate the way this term's used in academia, but we're just trying to persevere and get through a final or something or a mm-hmm. midterm or a week or the fact that literally starting from week two to week 10 is midterm season at UCSD and just trying to like push through those different weeks, right? And even if, um, like I was in math, but there was still people I was friends with who were in um, public health or poli sci or like different uh, majors altogether where we're just coming together to persevere, push through, but also have a good time and get some laughs in. Mm-hmm. Like it really felt like these are people that I've grown and bonded with and they've seen, I've seen them, they've seen me at like this initial stage of personal evolution and self-development. And we've got to see each other progress along the way. But on top of that, we, for these, this is strictly for the people that like, I'm still really close to to this day. We also didn't drift apart as we were changing. And that to me is like a really beautiful thing because it can be really natural to, um, be friends with someone you both change develop and grow in really great ways but you end up drifting apart because of that and that's normal that's fine but the fact that sometimes it doesn't it's yeah it's it's it makes the people that you know you still rock with you still fuck with it makes it that much more beautiful to me and I feel like all that goes into me saying oh I miss the UCSD people or even something as simple as like I miss the fucking um, BRC conversations because they would just be so weird and random and make, but at the same time, make perfect sense with the space. Yeah. Or, um, oh my God, the 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 group me conversations on like, what was some shit? Is is soup a cereal or a cereal a soup? Some shit like that. Yeah, cereal a soup. Yeah, like different things like that where it's like, yeah, I just kind of miss that because like, even like, okay, especially with the group me ones because that felt like, it was taking me out of this whole white Western reality to then being like, oh, actually, reality is actually on my phone in this really pointless mm-hmm. polar conversation with all these other Black people because we need mm-hmm. to decide this right the fuck now. You know what I mean? So, yeah, it's just, I think, yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a fine answer, more or less. It's, it's hard to try to answer this concise or not concisely, but in totality, but I think there's so many different elements to it. No, absolutely. But I think you did an excellent job because when you tweeted that, I was like, what you just said is such exactly what I was like. Yeah, like, I agree. Like, just being around a lot of people where you have a lot of uh, tight knit connection with, whether it comes from trauma bonding or just genuine bonding or uh, being in the same class, same major, same program with each other, just being a part of the same conversations. Because whether it's the group me or the BRC, it's kind of like, your own version like your own micro black twitter where it's like Mm -hmm. we're laughing at similar things or having shared conversations but there's this also this shared experience which is like yeah like i've i saw you when you first got here and you mentioned you wanted to do that and now you did and now you're doing it even at a higher level and uh, that's why a lot of the guests that have been on this podcast so far have been a lot of black ucsd people because it's like yeah like we all called our shots. Like these are people who are like, yeah, like X amount of years from now, I want to be in a PhD program X amount of years from now. I want to do this. And it's like, yeah, now people are 
doing it or very close to completing a lot of these things. And so mm -hmm. just wanting to let people in on some of those stories and some of those conversations. And I think that shared experience is just so powerful because like you mentioned, we crossed paths with the Black Men's Collective, which was a bi-weekly meeting of Black students, staff, faculty, et cetera, on campus. And even if some of those meetings were only like four or five of us, sometimes it was just a breath of fresh air to walk into that room and just see other Black male identifying people and be like, yeah, like, I don't got to explain nothing else right now. We could just talk nice and regular. Don't have mm -hmm. to add any any extra on it. We could just be regular in this space. And I think it's cool because I remember when the Black Men's Collective first started, uh, because the Black Women's Collective and Black Queer Collective were first, if I'm not mistaken. I know the Black Women's Collective for sure. And then when we started the Black Men's Collective, he was like, what y'all be talking about in there? Like, it was like everybody who wasn't a Black male in the BRC was like, what y'all be talking about? And we're like, none of y'all business. And it's not even like we was talking about nothing that deep, but it's like, nah, like this, this our shit. <laughs> yeah, that, oh my God. I actually do remember when some people would ask that. And I'm like, I promise you, we really not, like one, it's a closed space. So technically I'm not even around, I can't even really talk about it. But in my head, I'm thinking like, it's, it's really not like we're, it, you know what? Like we're it's just it's just conversation. It's just talk. A lot of time it really was just talk. Like sometimes we there would be meetings where we would there was one meeting where we just brought different like game stations and played shit. There was other meetings where we talked about more serious shit. Other meetings where oh my god, was it you and Raheem were playing um the fuck were y'all playing? Was it spades? Mm -hmm. Was it spades? Yeah, there'd just be some shit like that. Like, yeah, it was a it was a space. It was a good space. Yes, a good space for sure. And so I want to go back a little bit and talk about the educational component of UCSD, because obviously you weren't just there to kiki with us at the BRC. You were there for a degree or maybe you did come to UCSD to kiki with us. I can't I can't speak for you. Um, <laughs> but you have the distinction of one of a very, very few group of people I know that are all in on mathematics. I think that usually when it comes to math, when it comes to anything dealing with numbers, calculus, statistics, derivatives, whatever it may be, most people I know, they're like, keep that all the way away from me. And listeners who pay attention might recall James' name being brought up all the way back at the episode one of the Bank Hall podcast with our own Jada, I uh, got the Black Beauty Near You shirt on right mm -hmm. now. Yep. But as she was talking about uh, why she decided to pursue like computer science, she mentioned like your influence on her being able to get through some of those harder math classes and just that community that y'all built. So just to get the conversation started, what, a well, one, tell the listeners what you studied at UCSD. But in addition to that, what makes math so interesting or powerful for you? Uh, Yeah, so actually, uh, first and foremost, shout out to Jada, because it's been so We've been talking about like the community of being being built and seeing how people change and transition. My last year at UCSD, I remember I interviewed her for um, this project I was doing for the cross. And I remember at the time after I did I finished like asking her some questions, we just talked about her schedule because she was like talking about whether or not she was gonna take upper div math. And just like going from that and seeing like Jada then to also like when I saw her in graduation, because I got to see a few people. And also seeing Black Beauty near you, it's been so cool to see. So side note there. But um, yeah, I started out uh, at UCSC as a pure mathematics major. Uh, and then I realized that while pure math is something really intriguing to me, 
it's not exactly what I'm best at. So for context, pure math is basically a lot of proofing. You're doing a lot of abstract thought, abstract theories. And even though in all math you're proving, uh, pure math is like, um, like for example, those classes for pure math in undergrad where you're literally proving the ways you can use calculus. Like that's what I mean when I say proving. Um, but I realized I think I was better at um, applied mathematics. So things like probabilities, statistics, uh, all that shit. So in my fourth year, which was my second year on campus, I decided to make the transition over. And at that point, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with math because everyone always says, okay, there's a lot of things you can do. I'm like, okay, well, give me a list because I need to figure out what I want. You know what <laughs> I mean? Like, I need to figure out what I want to do. It's like where? <laughs> <laughs> right. Point me in the direction. Every direction? Not That's not, that's, that's not what I need. Um, so for a little bit there, I considered being an actuary. So um, I realized, actually, I don't want to help other people make a shit ton of money. That doesn't make me feel happy. Um, so that was really, really clueless and not sure what I wanted to do. And then, well, I was a intern at the Cross-Cultural Center doing my my SIP, which is kind of like the, the whole year-long project. I was interviewing, uh, what was his name? James something. He was, um, well, he used to be the head for the mathematics department at UCSD some, some time ago. And we were talking, and he told me, based on what he'd heard, that he thinks I would really enjoy mathematics education. And when he said that, it just kind of like clicked because I've always helped, I've always liked helping uh, people in math or tutoring friends. And I've always liked math a lot, but I just never wanted to really teach because I'd always heard, oh, teaching, you're going to be broken poor. And while I don't want to be rich necessarily, like filthy capitalist rich, a nigga don't want to be broke. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I never wanted to go towards that, but. I realized actually, mm, this is kind of cool. I like this, you know? So um, that kind of led me into my master's program where it was, even though it was in the math department, it was focused on um, teaching mathematics. But I still got to take a lot of math courses and I got to take some of my favorite math courses overall. And now in this PhD, I'm actually not even doing math courses, which is, which, well, let me say that again. I'm not doing math courses, which feels really weird, I'm being honest, but I also know I'm actually focusing on exactly what I want to do. Um, I might be veering off the question, I don't, <laughs> but um, I'll, I'll keep talking. Um, so yeah, right now I'm in a PhD program at UW that's um, in the math ed program for the College of Ed. And my own research interest is around Black joy in math education. Um, so something that is a little funny that I don't really get annoyed by, it's just like, okay, latch on to what you want, latch on to. Whenever I try to tell people exactly like what my focus is, most of the time they hear the math and they just kind of run with it. And they're like, oh, you're doing all these wild proofs. I'm like, I'm literally not taking a math class. <laughs> <laughs> so like I was doing some cool proofs before, but um, no, not exactly the the focus. Um, but yeah, I guess the reason why I've always enjoyed math, it was um going back to when I was 
five, four or five, but three. I think it was three. And um, at the time, me and my mom and my brother, I don't know if he was born yet, we were living with my grandma. And my mom would go out to work, uh, I'd stay home with my grandma, and she would have me do these uh, flashcards that were like numbered one through 50, in the back of uh, one was 51, 252, et cetera, up to 100. And she would always make me put them down and then say the number out loud, one to 100, however many times, um, every single day. And at first, I was like, oh, this is cool. This is fun. And then, like, okay, this is getting a bit repetitive. And then I say, okay, I know the numbers one to 100 better than I know the back of my hand. Like, I don't need to do this anymore. Um, but I continue to do it because I love my grandma. I'm not going to tell her no, you know? And I think that's when I really first started to enjoy just the concept of numbers. Um, I think from there, it just kind of snowballed where I was, I started to do well in uh, school with math and then that's, you know, positive reinforcement and so on and so forth. And, but yeah, that was the original experience that made me realize, oh, I actually really, really like math. And yeah, here we are. Um, 20 something years later, PhD. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah, just, just seeing a, a, like a black man talk about like being in a PhD program, just in general, always like warms my heart because being a first generation college grad and not really, not even knowing fully what a PhD was until coming to UCSD and then being able to now say like, oh, I have multiple friends who are on pathways to get their PhDs is just spectacular. So I know mm -hmm. you're in the middle of that, but want to pre-give you some flowers just for how far you've come and yeah just who you're meant to become when it comes to mathematics and in a lot of what you said it resonated a lot with me and a couple of things that I wanted to have you expand upon a bit uh one can you talk a little bit more obviously this is part of why you're in a PhD program but can you talk <laughs> a little bit more about math education and black joy because that's one of the things as I was stalking you to prepare for this podcast I saw in your LinkedIn profile and I thought that that was such a a good way to to summarize what your passions could be aligned with like you're not just looking at math but you're interested in the impact of math on blackness and black joy so what specifically about that relationship stood out to you and made you interested in it okay. hearing about the linkedin actually is a little funny because i i think i've only touched my linkedin or updated this is so bad to say i think i've only like upgrade updated it like one time in the last like sometime since COVID. So um I'm happy I did it semi-recently. I could add add some shit. So that's good. <laughs> um so yeah um black joy and math ed it's something I'm still admittedly trying to make sense of in like a technical sense because we're so conditioned to think about one mathematics as being this like super closed off thing, right? Um which is just not true at all. So Oh, it's gonna be a long response. Let me, I guess I can we can start start there. Yeah, let's take your time, Pastor. <laughs> Honestly, yeah, we're not by the way. so yeah, we'll we'll start there. So the whole notion of mathematics being a closed off subject where it can't be impacted by other things is in itself a lie. And not because um, well, I was gonna say not because two plus two doesn't always equal four, but technically you can there's different number systems where like the symbol two plus the symbol two does not give you this symbol four 
because you can use a base four number system where it's going to give you two plus two is going to give you something that looks like a one and a three. And so I won't get into that though. So even the notion. Oh, so you might have lost some people on that one. Yeah, let me. <laughs> I, I tracked, but I, I'm speaking for some of the listeners. I know, I know some people that's like, oh boy, you you know, lost me there. But <laughs> actually, even what I said was wrong. It's actually a one and a one, not one three. But anyways, that's just to say that um, math isn't as concrete and immovable as people think it is. It's just because we think about it in this super Western mentality where we think, okay, this is the only way to do math. There is no way math engages with the rest of the world outside of like applicable applications of building and creating shit. And that's just not true because you can't show me any classroom in America that focuses on math or any subject really. And tell me that the societal constructions of humanity don't impact the classroom. So for example, uh, I focus on black children. I want to focus on black children. So if we talk about race, People's race in the classroom is going to automatically impact the mathematics happening, because if the class is predominantly white, I'll speak from my own experiences, if the class is predominantly white and there's one or two black children, if they're in a group and doing math and working with other people and the rest of the group is white, they're not going to be having the same social interactions as if the entire class was black. They're not going to be engaging in the same way because either their opinions will be belittled. They won't feel like they can actually contribute because of the different ways race impacts them in every other part of their life. And that also gets brought into the classroom or even the way that the teachers engage with the students. All that impacts the way children experience and learn mathematics. So now you have children who believe that they genuinely aren't good at math. Mm. In reality, that's not true. They've just been conditioned to think that their opinion in this space doesn't matter or it's not doesn't have the same impact as others. And to be clear, I'm not saying that like some people aren't better at math than others. I'm not same way that some people are better at running than others. That's just how humans work. You know what I mean? There's just this level of, of variation. What I'm saying though, is the notion that certain people are just bad or good at math and that can't be impacted or that has no, the, the ways that um, society engages with each other or itself doesn't impact that is a lie. So first and foremost, I think that's the first thing to say on why black joy mathematics can even make sense. Crown Ellen, Bay Area, a proud sponsor of the Banquet Hall podcast. Thanks for listening. So now if we if we if we assume that what I said is true and it is, then this is we such don't a want proof. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is such a proof. It was. Even when I said it, I'm like, damn, this is like the most math shit. As soon as you said if we assume that what I just said, I was like, oh, this is taking me back. <laughs> yeah, I'm just gonna take everyone to 140A math at UCSD really quick. No, I'm so, enjoying this. Keep keep cooking. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, if we start there, then we no longer think that math is this closed off thing or this closed off space or entity. So now we realize, okay, yeah, math can be impacted by a lot of different shit. So why wouldn't it be impacted by race and the way that 
people experience race in other parts of society, right? And it literally is. It's not in the ways that a lot of people end up thinking. So if you look at test scores, like standardized test scores by race, more often than not, you'll see that Black children are scoring lower than, say, their white counterparts, which is a really loaded situation because it's not saying that Black children are inferior based on what I just said. It's saying there's a lot of things that are impacting them that are impacting their scores, even if we assume standardized test scores aren't complete bullshit. So now we have to think, okay, well, what's the actual thing happening here? So to slightly diverge, but not really, there's a, um... oh, wow, why did I just blank on his name? Oh my God. Danny, wow, that's embarrassing. So there's this um, black math educator named Danny Martin. He's at the University of Chicago. Right now, I think he's considered, he is considered one of like the great educators within math ed focusing on black children. Like he's, he's up there. He proposed this axiom when doing research with black children in math ed or really just in education. The axiom is Black children are brilliant. And start there. Mm. And for anyone who doesn't know what an axiom is, it's something that you're not going to refute or argue. It is your baseline. If you're building a house, the axiom is the foundation that's not going to change at all. And then you start building and changing shit from there, right? So if we start there and we know that race can impact the mathematics classroom, we have to ask ourselves, okay, well, if Black children are considered brilliant, and we know that for a fact, and we see these different test scores in the ways that, and we see that mathematics classrooms are actually genuinely painful and making negative experiences for them, what's wrong? It's not the kids. We're starting there. That's our foundation. That's the foundation for the house. We don't, we don't mess with that shit. So what's wrong? And the answer could be a lot of different things. It could be the... Um, actual curriculum, it can be the school system, it can be the teachers, it could be the environment that they're placed into within the classroom. It could be so many different things that can vary in so many more different ways. So why am I focusing on, or why do I want to focus on things around Black joy? It's because of my own experience that I talked about with my grandma. I believe that, so, even though I really do love mathematics, it's not like I've had a perfect um, experience with it, especially at UCSD. I went into UCSD thinking, okay, I'm hot shit. I'm about to get A's in all these classes. It's not going to be a big deal. Um, actually, you know what? This would be a good time to talk about. Uh... <laughs> okay, so uh, amongst some friends I have, the the term fall 2017 is almost like a cursed term. Mm. Um, and this is something me and your Donald's joke about a lot, uh, because, um, fall 2017 was like easily one of the worst terms in school for me because I was, um, so I came out of community college and going into UCSD, my first uh, quarter there. And I thought I had the brilliant idea of taking all math courses mm -hmm. because when I was in community college, there was only three courses I could take for like two years. So I wanted to just dive into math. Worst mistake, worst mistake I made because I ended up taking three different math courses 
that turned out to be like one of the hardest sequences of three courses I could have taken that quarter. So I went in thinking, okay, I'm gonna get all A's. I went home near tears and just praying to God I got C's. Like it like genuinely shattered the foundation of my confidence in so many different ways. So that's all to say, it's not like I've had a smooth sailing with math, but the reason why I've always enjoyed it and I've liked being in this space is because of the initial, the initial experience I had with mathematics from my grandma and the deep joy that was there. So that's the reason I focus on joy and how students engage in mathematics in different joyful situations or environments. Because I believe that's how, I mean, we know if you want to teach someone something, you don't just put them in a boring ass situation. If I want to teach someone how to play, I don't know, um, or if I want to teach someone uh, how to add or something, I might put them in a game of, um, I don't even know, maybe, I can't even think of anything like that. But I put them in some gaming environment where they can be engaged with other people. They can be playing this fun game that seemingly has nothing to do with math, but they're doing this addition, right? Yeah. Or even like, well, I wouldn't just throw someone into this because that would be <laughs> terrible. If we take like spades, for, for instance, right? And like how you keep track of like score, while you shouldn't just throw a kid into that, <laughs> that's a lot going on. That'd be one example of like, oh yeah, this is, there's addition here. There's this like, this number counting, there's like paying attention to numbers and all that. So yeah, that's, I guess, part of the reason why I focus on Black joy. And I guess what I even mean by that is, I guess I've answered that a little bit and like kind of what, what I more or less mean by that. And it's also something I'm wrestling and grappling with because even the notion of joy is so, even like the notion of joy by itself is already really complex. But when you take into account that you want to focus on Black joy, therefore you're centering Blackness first and then making sense of the joy through a Black experience, it's even more complex because there's, there's experiences that are both joyful and sorrowful given, given white America. And it's, actually, I'll stop there. I feel like I've talked a lot, but yeah, it's, it's, um, I guess it's something, it's just really complex. I'm still personally trying to make sense of it and honestly make it more complex in my head so I can really start to dissect mm. it and understand it. But yeah, that's my general focus. I'm kind of speechless. I think that there are so many powerful statements that you made within all that you say, like even like, I was going to say powerful gems, but within the gems, I think just your word choice within that, uh, I could tell that you're a poet, but we're going to get into that later. But um, I think that just hearing you describe how you're viewing math education and Black joy and how you've come to understand it, even to where you are at your point in your PhD journey was really powerful for me to hear. And I know for a lot of our listeners, just because you could tell that you really be thinking about this. Like you didn't just sign up for some random PhD program and like just kind of freestyling from there. And even if at times it might feel like freestyling, there's definitely this central North star to you that is like driving you to understand more about math education and black joy. And I think just how you described all the different facets of what you said, like, as you were talking, there would be questions I had, then you would answer them, I'd get another question, you would answer them. So <laughs> just f continuing to give you flowers because this is why people like you need to have PhDs. 
this is why people who look like us need to have these PhDs because who else is asking, who else are asking these questions and who cares enough to ask these questions and who cares to center blackness within a realm like mathematics. And I think just the way that you spoke to the intertwinings of blackness, mathematics, uh, there's some sociology in there, there's some psychology Mm -hmm. in there. And I, I'm just very much looking forward to seeing how your PhD journey continues to blossom and just who you become in the future. Like, I think that, yeah, you, you nailed it with that answer about math education and black joy and listeners, y'all should be taking notes. I got my little BRC notepad here. I was taking taking notes while you, you was cooking because I took note of Danny Martin. Like, I think uh, just that axiom that you were talking about. And then as you were talking, I'm like, because for the listeners who this is your first episode of Banquet Hall, uh, one of the things that I'm very much interested in in the future is to write a screenplay of just like Black people just being regular. Like, I feel like too often you have Black movies where they got to combat racism every single two mm-hmm. minutes. And I just I just want some Black people living lives. Like, I want people to go see like a regular Black movie. And I don't know how you feel about acting, but you'll for sure be cast as a black male teacher, even right. if it's a, even if it's just a cameo. I need you as a black math teacher in whatever movie I make in the future, because, yeah, I can I can see black kids just listening to you talk about these things because you understand what it means. Obviously, I mean, you understand what it means to be black. But, yeah, I just love the way that you spoke through all of that and are thinking through this massive topic. So even if you're still figuring out for yourself, man, I got to let you know, you've got a lot figured out already. Thank you. And I will absolutely be glad to be a part of that. That sounds like so much fun. Okay. Also, I guess small, it's, it's not even a plug, but like, I guess more of a plug for knowledge. Um, this book next to me, um, The Politics of Black Joy, Zero Neil Hurston and Neo-Abolitionism. It's something I've had to read, right? I have to, I chose to read this summer. And I was thinking about it because you just said, you know, seeing so much media about Black uh, pain and pushing against oppression and all that. And this book quite literally talks about, I guess, one way to think about uh, an aspect of this book is it talks about there being another option that there's, if there's the option of um, letting yourself be oppressed, pushing back against oppression, there's also the option of refusal. And it's, I guess I think of it as like a, if you're imagining yourself in a box, you're just breaking out of the box and choosing not to be in it. Um, so yeah, if anyone wants to read it, I think it's a really, really good read. Like she also, so the author is Lindsay Stewart, but she talks about Zero Neil Hurston and also in some ways in comparison to Beyonce's Lemonade album and the way that's a form of neo-abolitionism, or no, not, not form of neo-abolitionism. It's a, it's like a deconstruction or it's a, not de- what's the word I'm looking for? I guess an argument against neo-abolitionism. Yeah, yeah I, I just think people should read this because it's a really, 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 really great book that talks like, it, it just shows there's different ways of looking at Blackness and also different ways of yeah, please read it. Someone, someone read it. Someone, <laughs> someone read it. Came out we'll like twenty twenty one now, but yeah, someone read it. We'll add it to the uh, upcoming banquet hall podcast library. I wrote it down to make sure folks tune in for politics of Black Joy. 
Um, and gotta say, I love being around educated motherfuckers because you just pull out a book that you recommend just <laughs> off to the side. Like you started this podcast with a Rubik's cube. You got the book going. We talk about. Right, I still got it. I still got it. <laughs> it's still, it's still in my hand. It's still moving. Uh, which is a good transition though, because I also want to talk about. Uh, some of the things that you're interested in and do for fun outside of math. I mean, I know math is fun and engaging for you mm-hmm. as well, but um, we weren't going to talk about Rubik's Cubes on this podcast, but then right before we started, you grabbed the Rubik's Cube. And for those watching on the video, y'all got to see him like manipulate it and solve it when under, under like 2.5 milliseconds at the beginning of the episode. <laughs> so um can you talk a little bit about just when you started uh, messing around with Rubik's Cubes and how you got so good at uh, solving them? Because I don't think I was recording yet when you mentioned how fast you solved them. So why don't you talk a little bit about just Rubik's Cubes and how you got good at it? Yeah. Um, so I don't think I'm not as fast as I used to be. And also I'm nowhere near like a competitive speed, to be clear. But when I was in high school, my fastest time was like 43 seconds. I think on average, I could probably hit, well, on average was for sure, sure under a minute, but like my, my single best time was 43. And um, this started because I was, I think it was in my sophomore year. I was hanging out with my homie, uh, CJ. And he, I think he had recently learned how to solve a Rubik's Cube. And I was like, oh yeah, you should show me. So I was over at his place. And he broke it down for me. It took him a while to like show me exactly the algorithms. And it took a while, even longer than a while for me to like figure out how to like move the cube in the right way. And also we were working with like some dingy cubes. Like it was just, the quality was just shit. So it took a while. But once I got it down, I was like, oh wow, this is really cool. To like be able to say like, oh yeah, if you handed me this uh, uh, just messed up and everything, I can solve it, right? Mm. But at the time it was like, it probably took me like, 10 minutes down near to figure it out. And I was like, okay, I want to get faster at this. You know what I mean? So I started just messing around with it and solving it and unsolving it and solving it again. And I started to get a little faster and a little faster and a little faster. But finally I was really starting to make sense of the way like the cube moves and like different things to pay attention to. So like um, there's different portions where you're solving it, where if you pay attention to like where certain colors are at, you can think, okay, I could do this algorithm and it'll still get me to where I need to go. Or I can do this like abridged version of it. There'll be like probably three or four moves fewer. I can get to where I need to go faster and get to the next step. So I started to pay attention to those things. And then, uh, like I told Kyle in the beginning, uh, when I wanted to start practicing three different algorithms that could actually, that you always need to do to solve it, well, solve it the way I'm doing, I realized that if you start with the perfectly solved Rubik's Cube and then you go through the algorithms one after another in a certain way, you get back to a solved cube. So I thought, okay, well, in that case, I can just practice those algorithms and have them down. So I see, okay, cubes like this, work it out, next step. And uh, I started to do that and I started to do it faster and faster. And I was able to do like that sequence in like seven or eight seconds. And then at that point, I was like, okay, I was just doing it without looking because I'd memorized like all the movements. And uh, yeah, I guess that's a little bit about um, how I started and messing around with the Rubik's Cube. And um, now I'll say the way I solve it is a top up version. There's a top down where like 
like the way I do it, I think requires maybe like eight algorithms or something. The top down version has like over 50. It's un I tried figuring it out one time. I gave up after like not even a day. I'm like, that's not how I'm spending my summer. <laughs> I'm not learning. I can't do it. But yeah, if you do it the top down way, you can do it in. I think the record time now just got beat maybe like last month or something. I don't know how I know that, but I think I saw on like a TikTok or something like that. It was, <laughs> yeah, the new time is like 3.7 seconds or some some unreal yeah, time. Uh, like, no, it's not, it's not real. Um, but yeah, uh, this is a three by three. I used to have a four by four and five by five. Mm-hmm. I don't know where they're at. I think I lost them or something or they're back at home with my mom. Uh, I taught myself how to do for the more or less I taught myself how to do a four by four except for like one stupidly complicated algorithm I could never figure out I had to look it up and then a five by five I didn't teach myself to do only because I knew it was gonna be pretty similar to how I did the four by four but yeah so I guess that's a little bit about the (laughs) 43 seconds is just wild to me I've probably completed one Rubik's Cube in my life and it was I'm not even going to say how long it took because it was like a multi-day process because the, the Nintendo DS had this Rubik's Cube game and it taught you some of the algorithms of how to solve a Rubik's Cube. And so you could like solve a Rubik's Cube digitally on a Nintendo DS. So I did it that way. And then it had like instructions where you could do it yourself. So, you know, I'll take like an hour, play the game, like try to figure it out. But nah, I'm not. We going to issue the Banquet Hall podcast Rubik's Cube challenge. Any listener who can do it in under 10 minutes, you get a free shout out on the podcast. If you get it under one minute, then I don't know what you want out of me because I ain't got that much money to give, but you'll be in the Hall of Fame of the Banquet Hall. Um, if you if anyone can beat James's record, though, of 43 seconds, which is the fastest Rubik's Cube time of the Banquet Hall, uh, if you can beat that 43 seconds, I will give you $20. I will I will make that statement. <laughs> someone beats me i really want to know because that'll make me competitive enough to like dive back into doing this so i don't think i can do under a minute anymore but like give me a reason (laughs) we gonna end up with the first banquet hall live show being a rubik's cube challenge (laughs) oh that's hilarious um something you mentioned earlier in the podcast that some folks might have caught uh not only are you one of the few people i know that loves math few people i know that can solve rubik's cube super fast you're also the you're the only person i know who has ever done fencing Mm. like when i when i found out that you were fencing i was like dang like i've literally never met a single person like i obviously knew what no i guess not obviously but i knew what (laughs) fencing was as a sport but literally i never seen anybody what do you even call the things y'all joust with (laughs) what Uh, there's three different ones. There's foil, saber, and epic. Okay, let's call it a saber for the purpose of this because um, I never know anyone who picked up the saber, honestly. Like, I've never seen anybody put on the uniform. My relationship to fencing was I would go to main gym trying to hoop and there'll be a fencing competition i get pissed and i'm like why are y'all fencing on this basketball court that was my introduction to what it meant to be black and higher ed when i went to the ucsd basketball court and they were fencing i was like oh college is weird um so, so wait was this a main gym 
Yeah, main gym. Yeah, that was practice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I I I was pissed off because like, what do you mean y'all are practicing fencing? This is a basketball court. Go to the fence. <laughs> there what? Then we don't have like a. There's no. There's no place for us. Like. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, yeah, I'm being facetious, but in those moments, little 17 year old, like fresh out of Los Angeles, Kyler, I was, I was confused. Um, but when sad. did you, when did you get started with fencing? And why don't you just talk a little bit about your, you and fencing? Yeah, um, I feel like if you were gonna make like a autobiography or like a movie of me, the two things you'd have to focus on are math and fencing, because um, math is something that's like been in my life consistently but fencing has been the thing that like really I don't even at some point it was sometimes it was something that was just really fun for me to do and exciting and something I fell in love with other times it was like my reason for it just kept me going like not in some like really depressive sense but it was like it was one thing that was like, okay this is something I can always find joy in regardless of the chaotic shit around me um, it kept me grounded, kept me sane. It, yeah. So going back to when it all started, uh, when I was six years old, my mom, well, actually, no, yeah, when I was six years old, I was taking swimming lessons at the YMCA. My mom was talking to another black parent because there were the only two black parents there. And they're talking about what their children were in. And she was, the other woman had said, oh, my son's uh, taking fencing classes. And at that point, my mom was trying to like find something that I enjoyed enough to like really dive into. She didn't care what it was, whether it was like music or sports or anything like that. She just wanted me to find it. And she asked me if I wanted to try fencing. And I was like, yeah, okay, cool. Because at that point at YMCA, I'd done like basketball. I think I'd done like maybe some some type of karate classes or something. I'd done swimming and I'd, I'd taken, I'd done soccer and little league and all that. But it was, it was always fun, but it wasn't like the thing. So she, um, one day we went to go check it out. It was right next to where my aunt at the time worked. So we went to go visit my aunt. Um, and it was like in the same parking lot. Um, and it was at community center. So I don't know why my mom let me do this at six years old, but she let me like walk over to the other building to go check it oh, out. Oh wow. Yeah, I was like, uh, okay, questionable. I don't know why you did that, mom, but I, yeah, I still love you. <laughs> so I get over there to the building and I didn't know where I was going either. So I just went into like the first room I saw and it just happened to be right there. I walked in, there was different people with masks on. I think they probably had foils or sabers. I don't know which weapon it was. And there was a black coach who was just telling them how to move up and down the strip. And I just kind of sat there and watched for a while. Um, my mom eventually came over and she talked to the coach. He explained kind of what was going on, the fencing. She asked me if I wanted to join. I said, yeah, because it looked super fun and almost like could look like a choreographed dance to me. And so that's how I originally started. Uh, for the next six months, I got beat down in every single bout I was in <laughs> because I was like six years old and the youngest person after me was like 10. And they were like twice my size. So yeah, for six months, I don't think I scored a single point in any bout. And then finally, I got one point. I got one point after six months and it felt like it felt so good to actually get it. And it just, yeah, it was, I couldn't tell you why I continued to fence after that long of never scoring at that point, but I don't know. It was fun. 
I enjoyed it. I liked it. I kept going back. And <clears throat> the way his um, club worked, it, so most fencing clubs, they actually have a building and they have their own facility, but this was just run out of a community center. And so it was, it was kind of makeshift, like extremely makeshift. And also given that it was a community center, people were coming in and out of classes, you know? And I was also for free. That was the other thing. So there was never any level of consistency outside of me. And I just kept coming for several years. And then finally I started going to competitions when I was nine, nine or 10. And of course I was getting beat down. <laughs> um, but I was still having a lot of fun, having a lot of fun traveling. Um, Cause we went to the, we ended up going to the Bay a lot for tournaments, mm -hmm. mostly, well, okay, let me stop. I mean, sometimes tournaments would be in the Bay. <laughs> sometimes it'd be near the Bay, but not the Bay. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I'm very clear you. about this. <laughs> very clear. Um, there'd be a lot of tournaments in SF. Um, some were in like, I don't think there was ever any in Oakland. Some would be in like San Jose or San Rafael. Um, other events would be more local, like in SAC. And so those are all the local ones, though. But then I started to go to national events when I was 10. And when I was younger, I was also fencing all three weapons because I liked all of them, which no one really ever does as you get older and older. But um, yeah, I started, I went to my first national event when I was 10, and it was in San Jose, which was really cool, wasn't that far. And I got a medal, which was like a first, like, First one where I was like, okay, maybe I'm actually kind of good at this. And uh, I guess I've just been fencing ever since, um, where I was fencing for several years, many years after that. I was going to national events. Uh, I was meddling. I was genuinely fucking good. I think the there was even a point in time where I could have gone international, but like the oh, funds wow. just were not there. Yeah. But international, you have to pay so much because you're paying for like, not just your own fees, but technically the fees for any like referees that are being sent from your country and all that shit. It gets really complicated. But yeah, no, there was, I had a teammate who was one rank higher than me nationally, only because he went to more events. He wasn't better than me. I kicked his ass every time, but I just didn't have the funds. You know what I mean? If I didn't go to more events, could have placed better, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, no, that was like, um, I say it's a foundational thing for me because I think it taught me I mean, competition, it teaches you a lot about yourself, but also how to engage and interact with other people. But also the fact that a black man was my coach. Mm -hmm. He um he was the first, he, he was the first person ever told me about code switching when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And he didn't call it that, but he was saying, you know, in certain spaces, um, you're gonna talk in certain ways. And while I unpacking that as an adult, like, okay, that's not like the best thing necessarily, but at the same time, it's an important skill to have. And um, something he used to always say is, he would also tell me is um, when you're at events, it's also ways you have to engage yourself as a black man. Mm. You want to make sure you're being cordial, you're being nice, you're being respectable when you're off the strip. Once you're actually fencing and your mask comes down, he would say you sounds like you have to flip a switch. Mm. When, you're a fence, when you're not fencing, you're a respectful human being, you're loved by all, et cetera, et cetera. When the mask comes down, all that goes out the window the only thing that matters is winning the bout. And then the mask comes off and you're back. And on this way, he would talk about the way you have to carry yourself. And even the different lessons he gave me that I didn't fully understand on like 
black history and just black existence, black life, it was very, very foundational for me. Yeah. Wow, thank you for sharing all of that. And this is why I really wanted to make sure that we had time to talk about this. Cause I mean, I laughed as I was saying, you're the only person I know who does fencing my life, but I think that's what makes it cool to me because it's like, mm -hmm. okay, what is this part of your life? And when we talk about sports like fencing, why don't more people know black people that are fencing or why isn't that more integral into more people's lives? So uh, I said black male teacher, black math teacher on movie. Maybe you need to be the math teacher. That's also the fencing coach too in this movie because- That would be cool. Uh, <laughs> but I think that was just a great testament to the power of representation because having that as an influential person in your life growing up and fencing being so integral to you as a person i know i think that's very interesting and yeah thank you for sharing that part of you and to add an appendix to the rubik's cube challenge a fencing <laughs> challenge for everyone who anyone who can score a point on james uh, you will also, <laughs> also get 20 dollars from the banquet hall podcast fund um couple more areas that I wanted to get to with your hobbies before we get you going. Uh, one is video games. Like we've already been nerding out mm. on this podcast a bit, but I know that video games are things that bring you, or at least it seems to bring you a lot of joy. I don't want to speak for you, but I know that uh, you've streamed in the past. So why don't you just talk a little bit about video games and why you identify as a gamer? Yeah. Uh, believe it or not, this also goes a little bit back to fencing because um. Mm. After my first year at UCSD, I realized I was going to stop fencing, um, which was like a huge identity crisis because even though as much as I loved mathematics, I saw myself as a fencer before I saw myself as a mathematician. So mm. I was kind of stripping like one of the biggest labels for myself. Like back when I was religious, if I had to like put the whole, the um, I guess my importance or my values in life, it was kind of similar to that one character off of um off of the best man where he's like oh yeah for him it was like god family football for me it was god family fencing mm. and so when i stopped fencing it was like this huge identity crisis thing where i was like really losing my mind a little bit and video games along with poetry was one of the things that kind of stepped in as like a not as a place filler but it was like me trying to make sense of myself through these things um and I mean, before then, I'd still played games before with friends, and I obviously, I had my own game systems up to that point, but I think I started to, like, look into or dive a little bit deeper after that, to where I started to pay attention to certain game releases, or I try to make sense of, like, okay, well, what games do I like versus the ones I don't, and, you know, different things like that, so I think that's the role it played for me. And then once the pandemic came, that's when I decided, you know, I think I kind of want to try streaming. Mm. And obviously, strangely enough, I think I still consider myself a streamer, even though I haven't streamed even this year. I can't find time, but even I guess like, yeah, time and general energy to do it. But streaming for me was kind of this, this way of me trying to like place myself in a gaming environment in a very different way and make sense of what games I like in this specific instance. So something I've never enjoyed is like FPSs, first person shooters. I never really liked it that much, but there were games that I really enjoyed playing by myself. And there were other games I enjoyed playing on uh, Steam on stream. So 
one of the games I played on stream that like really got me, I don't want to say like an audience, like it was like 50 people, but it actually got me like a good smooth, like six or seven people to watch me was this game called Danganronpa, which is um, a really story-based game. So a lot of funny shit will happen. A lot of serious shit will happen. It's also like required me to like read off dialogue sometimes and add my own emphasis on things. Other times the there was actually audio to go with it, but it was just a really cool experience to like play this story driven game with people who are just watching me. We can engage, interact, they ask me questions, I talk. And so, yeah, it was really, really fun to like experience gaming in that sense. And also it's really fun to play things, games by myself or fun to play other games with other people. And so, yeah, it's a little bit of how it kind of played out for me at least, but yeah. Awesome. Um, and then the last piece you alluded to it in that answer, uh, your Instagram bio says that you write poetry sometimes, which <laughs> is the most writer thing for someone to say, because I feel like writers have such an attachment to words to where like, if like, oh, you're a poet, it's like, I write poetry sometimes. I'm not a poet, but it's like, nah, like... <laughs> I, I I peep game, but why don't you talk a little <laughs> about I talk a little bit about what writing has meant for you in a general sense, and uh, what type of poetry you like to write sometimes. Mm. Yeah, I think um, so writing for me was also a way of uh, self understanding and self discovery after I stopped fencing. Um, so I'll I, I'll tell the story. So. Back when I was, when I first realized I was going to no longer be fencing, it was like, I think April, it was March, March 2020, no, 2020, 2018. Mm -hmm. uh, we were going into the next quarter, we we're about to, and I was sitting at home, where my, you know, the dorm, dorm room, and my mom had just sent me this poetry video that turns out to this day she until like I went up at home and you slow down until I went home this uh last month she never realized I even watched the video that she sent me oh wow so she didn't even realize the impact it had on me because I guess I just didn't respond because I went on this little rabbit hole but when she walked when she sent it to me it was um it was Rudy Francisco's poem of the Starbucks girl that he was doing live mm. and but it was an iteration of it when he made a mistake and he was like trying to catch it and that singular video kind of put me on this rabbit hole of just like Googling different people's spoken word performances, just watching them and playing them back. I mean, like, oh, wow, this is so dope. This is so cool. And at that point, I'd already written poetry in the past, but like, I didn't write it that often to really say like, oh, I'm a poet by any means. I guess my own relationship to it was also really different. But that got me started on like diving back into poetry. And then there was one night in particular there was a bsu event that happened and um i uh what was it i think it was like an arts and crafts type of thing and after it ended um alicia kyra and a few other people they were going to head back to their um to alicia and kyra's apartment at the time i was on campus and they asked me if i wanted to come and i was like okay I guess <laughs> I like I know y'all, but I don't really know no y'all. Y'all know no me, but all right, cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> and we got there, and there was a few people there that were poets. Tino was there too, 
And there's some people just started sharing poems. And I shared one I'd written the year before when I was uh, still in community college. I think I performed it at, um, at Flexing. Yeah, I did it at Flexing. It was um, The Oppressor's Language is the title of it. And uh, I think I did that piece there. And it just kind of became its own thing where it's like, oh, wow. Like it, it was like a whole spiritual, magical space that night. And that just kind of got me started. And mm -hmm. then when flexing actually happened the month after, that's when I feel like I really dived in more into poetry because I was like practicing how to like bring out the emotion of it. Cause that piece itself is like anger filled. Cause I'm writing about like how the only way for me to express myself is through the language I was not supposed to know. And I can never know, I can never like undo any of that. Cause even if I learn different languages that make sense of my own ancestry, my origin is still English. That's what my tongue is used to. So um, I think that's where it really all started for me. I think now I still write for the sake of self-expression and self-understanding. And the reason I say in my bio, I write sometimes is I feel like I write in like bursts where I'll go like months without writing a single fucking thing. And then suddenly over the next two weeks, I've written like five poems. And then it just kind of slows down and picks back up and it's kind of that pace. But I have this poem that's, um okay. I, <laughs> for a long time, this was just the working title because I didn't have a title for it, but I liked the fake title a friend gave me. This is basically the title now. The title of the poem is called uh, Leslie Nope is dead because this poem fucking killed her. <laughs> and uh, the pile is there because um, I referenced some um, like 10 second clip from like Parks and Rec where she talks about like, this is just insult insulting poetry. And my poem is like a response to that where I'm saying, no, poetry doesn't have to be this one singular thing. It's what we make it to be as poets. And part of it's also me saying like the term poet, while it's not something that's like, you're gonna grab just disrespect. If you write and you consider yourself a poet, claim it. I mean, you can absolutely claim that. So yeah, I think my own relationship to poetry is a lot around self-identity and self-understanding and just, I guess, self-revelation. Mm. And I think I'm still taking time to figure out if that means I'm going to share a lot of it like at some level okay so i know i still want to publish some type of poetry book before streets I publish an academic. I, I i'm not i, I want to do it i want to do it before the phd's done um but i guess i'm also figuring out like what what things i've written about myself where i'm like doing the self-discovery is actually going to be you know for myself whether it's going to be something i share with others how open i want to be how open i actually desire myself to be in the future about it um, so again, that's kind of how poetry, I guess, has fit into my life. And also, it's also helped me make sense of my research, kind of. Mm -hmm. So, like, I've, I've, uh, I started to write a poem last week that was um, titled Joy Feels Like, dot, dot, dot. And just me trying to make sense of how joy exists within me and my life. And on one hand, it can feel like, like I said, it can feel like uh, adrenaline, but slower. Like, the way it just kind of, like, spreads through your body but also it feels fleeting. Mm. Like it feels like when you're uh, a kid going on a play date and you get to your friend's house and then as soon as you get there, you realize, wow, I'm going to hate when I have to leave. 
like it feels like that or it's like um i think one line was something along the lines of like um it feels like you're justin gatling running running after you saying mm-hmm. like it's you're 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 right there but you're not faster than like mm-hmm. sort of okay. yeah it's just yeah trying to help me just make sense of the make me want to write my turn off this podcast or write a poetry book you never know <laughs> um but no like sincerely thank you james for just sharing all these different parts of who you are and i think it's just a true reflection of what i hope for this podcast to be is just to be able to give folks space to one give the guests space to tell their story but also give listeners an opportunity to hear all these different parts of who you are because uh, for those who might be tuning into this podcast that only know the math side of you or only know one part of you, they get to see all these different parts of you. And in each of your answers, you can see how the rest of your hobbies, the rest of your passions or rest of how you think kind of manifests itself in different ways. And I'm happy that we we're able to touch on those different aspects of who you are. Um, going to the tail end of the podcast, I just have a few rapid fire questions to ask you. I uh, want to be respectful Ooh. of your time, so don't feel the need to give too detailed of a response, but just whatever comes first to mind is totally fine. Uh, first things first, as I speak slightly slower to give you time to swallow your water, uh, <laughs> who are some people who inspire you or influence you? Mm. Um, in particular, when I was younger, Muhammad Ali was when I was an athlete calling himself the greatest. I also want to be the greatest in my sport. Mm-hmm. Um, another is my grandma because of, she was born in like 1935. So mm-hmm. she went through a lot of the civil rights era shit. And that impacted a lot of the stories she would tell me and different. Like I would say I had my own confidence because of her. Once she had died when I was like 13, it took a long time to like rebuild up my confidence. And I think it's part of the reason why I fell out of love with fencing when I did. Mm. Um, my mom, not gonna get too far into it because I don't feel like crying right now, but my mom, that's a whole answer by itself. Um, I think also like various friends I have, like especially the people that I was on, um, people I was on board with, like I had to name them Alicia and Jordanos. Yeah, like going to school with them and like just being around them. Those are different points in time where I look at what they're doing. I'm like, damn. I need to give, I need to figure out the fuck I'm going with, doing with this math shit. Like, are you an actuary? Am I doing something else? What am I doing? What am I doing? And yeah, so I guess a general answer I'll say is my friends. Yeah. Gotta love some good friends. Uh, where can people find you and how can they support you? Uh, you can find me on uh, IG and Twitter uh jameson underscore is underscore red jameson's with an e instead of an i um for support that's an interesting question because i think that also makes me think of what i need support on and that's probably just uh getting through this phd i'm only on year two and it's going to take at least five um i'm only starting year two so i think general support um Engage with me on the TL, you know? If I tweet something, you think it's funny, you think it's weird, you think it's goofy, it makes you giggle, I don't know. Just like it, comment. I'll do the, I do the same with people all the time. Let's just build a little internet community so we can just kiki a little bit because life be hard. <laughs> life do be hard. 
Um, anything you want to shamelessly plug or anything you want to manifest on this podcast for the near future? Again, please, for the love of God, read this book by Lindsay Politics Stewart. Politics of Black Joy. And Politics of Black Joy. Zorona Hurston and Neo-Abolitionism. I could talk about this book for probably a long time. Like I have notes on my different thoughts around it. So that, um, I honestly plug the different poets I know. So one, your own books, uh, Tino's book, um, which I wish I had next to me. I have my books still packed up because I want to wait till I have a bookshelf. So I still have them away. Otherwise I have it like right next to me, I can whip it out. Um, I'm trying to think. Obviously, Black Beauty near you, but we we got the shirt. We already know. We got the shirt. It's right there. Of and if I had my own poetry book yet, I would plug that too. But hopefully that's in the works in a couple of years. So that's the manifestation right there. That's the manifestation. Poetry book on the way. But I want to double that shout out for uh, Tino's book, Shadow Work. Um, I, I love that book. I remember the yeah. first time that I opened that poetry book. It was like, it was a time where I emotionally was going through a lot and I opened it and I saw such a mirror to myself. I had to close it real quick. I was like, Oh, like we, we, we going there with this. Like already <laughs> that book, that book is powerful. Um, and in the, in the best ways, like I mm-hmm. loved, you know, as a friend and as a poet. So, uh, definitely y'all check out shadow work. Yeah. Um, then when I read it, I fully, I feel like I understood her as a person on such a deeper level. So I had to text her and be like, Hey, I feel Same. like I'm seeing you, like I really know you now. Like Same. if I think, like yeah, if I take in like my experiences reading the book, but also my experiences like just engaging with her, like yeah, no, I'm, yeah, Man. yeah, we cool, we cool, we cool to the end of time. I get it, we right here, <laughs> right here. Man, uh, so check out Shadow Work. Also check out Tino's episode on the podcast where we dove into Shadow Work a little bit and talked about that journey. Um, and then last question before I turn it over to you, uh, if you can give a takeaway from this episode for yourself, as well as what you hope our listeners take away from this episode. Takeaway for myself. Interestingly enough, I think the takeaway is this might, it might be time to like really dig into poetry a little bit. I think even talking about it, I was like, yeah, I think there's some things I want to write. Or at least there's been like several times where I'm like, oh, this is a poetry idea. And I take note of it or I end up forgetting it or something. So might be time to dive into it. I guess that's a note for me. Um, from listeners, I would say I really hope if there's any part you have to like rewatch to make sense of, please go back to when I talk about Black Joy mm. because that's such a even though I'm talking about in math ed, I'm doing it in math because math is the thing I really enjoy. But that can be applied to so many different mm. things, so many different spaces in like so many complex ways. I feel like that's something that needs to be like looked at in the ways that race can impact literally every single facet. And it's not even a joke. Every single facet of reality and society that we know, especially in America, I, yeah, I would say like go back to anything I said there and just try and make sense of it if people want to like engage me and discuss it. One thing about anyone who has a PhD or is getting a PhD, we love talking people's fucking ear off about the shit we're studying. Cause like most of the time we don't get to, you know what I mean? Like if you want to sit down and hear me talk about that shit, nigga, you could have just interviewed me on just that topic 
and nothing else. And I would have <laughs> gone the fuck off. I could have explained. I honestly stopped myself. I'm like, okay, no, this is. <laughs> I could say so much more. I could try to explain everything. I could explain this book. I could explain the articles I've been reading. So I guess note for people listening and people watching, I guess go back to that and make sense of it. And I'd be more than willing to engage people with it if they want to they want to DM me or something like that yeah I definitely agree that was a segment of the pot that you really dropped a lot of gems so hope people really sit with that and figure out what that's the banquet hall homework assignment of the episode uh figure out where black joy shows up in your life or how you can manifest black joy how you can support curate black joy whatever that that might be for you and your field and your expertise um and yeah James that was just such a good takeaway for our listeners so I definitely appreciate that. Definitely appreciate you for making the time to be on this podcast. Uh, just want to end the podcast by turning over to you to see if there's any last things you want to say that maybe I didn't ask about or any people you want to shout out. How are you feeling? Oh, how am I feeling? Um, first off, I want to say thank you for the questions you did ask. I thought they were really good, especially particularly for me. Um. I'm not sure that anything I didn't touch on that I would want to. I feel like I talked about a lot of things, said a lot of shit. I mean, it's also impossible for me to, I guess, share every single facet as much as I'm trying to, even like mentally trying to figure out, like, how can I, <laughs> how can I say more? <laughs> what I've said. Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess, I guess, shout out to, I guess, my own support system in different ways that has shown up different ways it continues to show up, different ways it changes, different ways that people involved with me uh, change and evolve and grow and pursue their own goals. And maybe this is one thing I will say. Um, and this is such a offhand topic. This is like, this is how I really do feel like I have undiagnosed ADHD. So I, uh, I've had various people tell me that it's, they think it's really cool that I'm pursuing my dream with the PhD. And that's always been interesting to me because for me, it's never been a dream. It was a goal. And this is why I think a slight distinction is. And I think a goal is something that you believe is like, you're setting up for yourself and you believe will happen. Which is why like, if you're working out, you set like small, no progression goals of like maybe losing weight or being able to bench or squat like five more uh, pounds than you did a month ago or something like that, right? It's these goals. Goals are things that you know you can achieve and you will achieve with time. But a dream for me is something that's like, you can genuinely say, okay, this is might be unattainable, but it's something I can reach for. Mm. It's something that's like, I think I can reach for and I want to go for it. And so I think that's all to say. Um, I think everyone should be just a little bit delusional, just just a, a, just a tiny bit delusional with like what you want. Because in my head, though I'm not actually uh, a doctor yet, I don't have my doctorate, I don't have a PhD, I'm only in my second year of a really long journey. In my head, I already have it. I'm just going As through the, be. yeah, I'm just going through like the physical processes of it. So I can actually say, oh yeah, it's on a fucking piece of paper. But in my head, it's already there. And I'm just consistently building up my own knowledge of what I want to. And I think dreams can be the same way, where it's like you already see yourself having it, regardless of how unattainable it could potentially be. I think living in delusion to an extent 
is really, really good. It's part of the dreaming process. It's part of the manifesting and the dreaming and remembering. And there's there's so much research that I can say, but like that's, I, yeah, I think everyone should be a little, a little delusional with what they want. I can't think of a better way to end the podcast there. Um, I definitely feel largely delusional in a lot of areas of like my aspirations and whatnot, maybe a little too delusional sometimes. Uh, but I feel you on that because that's why in my head, like I, I am a screenwriter, like the script is in the process of being made, but I am a screenwriter. Yeah, exactly. um, but James, I think it's obvious that you will be a return guest to this podcast because there's so much more that we could have talked about. Yeah. Um, we gave the listeners like an hour and a half plus of content to just sit and digest. So listeners, I hope y'all continue to engage with Black Joy. Uh, as James said, hit him up on the timeline, talk about math, talk about Black Joy, challenge them to a fencing duel, uh, whatever it may be. <laughs> Um, if this is your first time tuning into the podcast or if you didn't follow instructions at the beginning, please like, subscribe, follow, share with a friend, um, whatever. Y'all, y'all know the deal. I say this every episode. Y'all, y'all know what y'all supposed to do when y'all, when y'all supporting y'all friends. Do the support exactly. thing. The support thing. Do it, please. Please. Just do, just do the support thing. Uh, tap in with James. Tap in with other members of the Banquet Hall podcast. And we will catch y'all next time.